0: And good evening. Today is Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. I'm your host, Evan George, and welcome to the nightly news edition of Bostopia. Wanted to start by saying I can't believe I delayed the opening of this show to watch that second period of the Bruins. However, we're going to keep it just to the intermission. I switched hats. I'm going cragging next year if this is the product they're going to put out on the field. Second starting note, wanted to say again, happy birthday to my father, Frank George, for his 61st birthday. We just had some Chinese food. That was where I did the 62nd review. But in a rundown of the top stories of today, two are very recent. Five more Boston police officers were found to be involved with the ongoing Overtime Corruption Scheme, can't say it enough. They are only focused right now on the evidence unit. God knows how many other Boston police officers were involved in what is clearly widespread practice. Second, we have two more resignations from the Boston City Council who were caught venting their frustrations at wealthy, whitey residents of West Roxbury, referring to them as Westy Whites. That was my tongue twister. BPS schools lack proper air conditioning, HVAC, and in some, in schools I've taught in, don't even have window blinds, creating what was referred to as a greenhouse effect that students had to go sit through in unnecessary MCAS testing of. 620 deaths just in Massachusetts were found directly linked to car emissions, the highest in New England by far. Also, the recent passage of the fair share to make it to the ballot, which will be the beginning story. And what is going on with Uber, a by-request story. Before we get into the fair share, I just want to say that you can also request I cover some stories if you want to leave me a and a on TikTok, if you want to reach out to me on Twitter for the other audience, always feel free to do so, and I love to talk and clarify things as we go. But this was brought up by a few different people wanting me to hit on why are Uber and Lyfts so expensive in some areas, why are there not enough drivers? So I will be discussing that. But that's going to be the second story. The first story and the top news for today that I want to go into is about the fair share amendment, because I have no doubt that we are going to see op-eds we did yesterday, we did today, and we will continue to throughout now, until the fall of 2022, when we all get to vote on whether or not to add 4% on the income tax, state income tax, of our wealthiest residents. So here's um, Aaron, and I believe I always mess up her last name, Turnin, Erin Turnin from The Herald, does a quick recap of what happened today, reading directly from the piece that was published just a few hours ago. A controversial wealth tax is finally headed to the 2022 ballot, but politicians are predicting a heated campaign season before voters decide if Massachusetts millionaires should pay more in taxes. Now, this is a good time to remind my TikTok audience that I recommend hopping over to Twitch, to YouTube, to Facebook, or I broadcast there because then you can see the visuals that I'm referring to. And I also get to look at you rather than you kind of just staring at my chin, but Back to the piece, reading now from Senator Jason Lewis. Our wealthiest residents can afford to pay a bit more in taxes to help fund investments that expand opportunity and make our commonwealth more just and equitable for all. Voting went by a 159 to 41, which is a great margin. And again, this does not pass this increase. This merely allows it to appear on the 2022 ballot. The Raise Up Massachusetts Coalition applauded lawmakers for approving the proposal. And I will get more into some of the disingenuous arguments against it in just a moment. And let's actually switch right to that, and then I will explain just a little bit more about just how poor of a job they are already starting to do to defense it. And if you are ever looking for the weakest possible argument... Fortunately, we have um, Jeff Jacoby, who still has a column uh, for the Boston Globe, beginning with his uh, entry into this. A century-old provision of the Massachusetts Constitution commands that if the Commonwealth taxes income, it must do so at a uniform rate. Again, another way of saying that, uniform, everyone has to pay the same state income tax. Doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, doesn't matter if you work minimum wage. Five times in the modern era, the piece continues, 1962, 68, 72, 76, and 94, he describes them as tax-and-spend liberals have invited voters to discard that rule. Five times, voters had said no. And I got into a brief back and forth with the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance, who said that the voters have already said no to this five times, and of course I had to point out to them that the most recent time was 27 years ago, and back then including from the 1960s until, really just until about 2008 with the financial crisis, people believed in trickle-down economics. People believed that we should let the rich have as much money as they want, and then we will all reap the benefits from it. 1994, Democrats and Republicans alike would have agreed with that. The era of big government is over. And so Massachusetts voters have not had a chance. That he calls it the modern era in the past 27 years to have a say on this. To say, do you know what? We have enough data. We have enough evidence. We saw what happened with the 2008 financial collapse. We have seen what happened in the aftermath of that. And guess what? We are getting fleeced. Working class people are getting hustled. There was just another report in uh, Probaca. Probaca that details what the 50 uh, wealthiest people barely pay anything in income taxes and how they get around doing that and yet we continue to give them government contracts. That's a separate issue. Continuing. There is considerable arrogance in the way that advocates of the sur-attacks blindly disregard the voters' repeated refusal to overturn the constitutional ban. Again, the most recent one was 27 years ago. So the idea that we can't vote on anything... Um, within a 30-year period, especially changes around tax policy, is ludicrous. And the reason we have to do this constitutional amendment is because, again, it's in the Constitution, so we have to change it. Nobody wants to uh, dictate tax policy through the Constitution, but because a bunch of idiots a century ago, this is what we have to do. Those pushing for a millionaire's tax sometimes justify the demand by insisting that the wealthy don't pay their fair share in taxes, and as I mentioned before, I don't like the language around fair share, to be honest, because I don't think there's really any amount that a billionaire could pay, besides maybe over 100%, which is going to make things fair, But be that as it may. He continues, if ever there was a time that state government didn't need more money, the time is now. I want to keep in mind that just yesterday, and I reported on it today, that we have classrooms here in Boston, America's oldest public school district, that don't even have window blinds, never mind operating fans. There are still schools in BPS where you can't drink the water because it's full of lead. So the idea that we have enough money is, again, absolutely ludicrous. And now here's my favorite part, and this is where I had some fun with the mask fiscal alliance today. But the strongest argument against the millionaire surtax is that it will deal a body blow to the Massachusetts economy. In a study released Tuesday, the Beacon Hill Institute—oh, that sounds official— quantified the effects that will be caused by out-migration, the relocation of Massachusetts by businesses and high-income individuals that will be a consequence of a steep new surtax. And now we have to pause there because that sounds really official. That sounds scary. They did a study and they quantified the effects. And this is an argument that you hear every single time that people bring up the concept of taxing the rich, which is... If you tax the rich, they will leave. Now that has, that is a good hypothesis. That that sounds logical to a lot of different people. That if you tax wealthy people, they will simply move to a state that has, does not have that same tax. And therefore you will miss out on all that money and it'll actually hurt your economy. I think that is more than a fair question. I don't know, maybe 80 years ago. But since that point, we have more than enough evidence to show that that isn't what actually happens so first what, what is this study that, that he refers to because it's from the Beacon Hill that sounds that sounds super serial and here it is the Beacon Hill Institute economic methods applied to current issues that wow these people must know what they're doing a new study by the Beacon Hill Institute finds that the proposed millionaire's tax headed for the Massachusetts ballot will likely harm the state's economy with loss of jobs, investment, disposable income. Again, wow, that that's, that sounds serious. So now, um, but what was this study? How did they do it? Oh, here it is. The Economic and Fiscal Effects of a Proposed Millionaire's Tax in Massachusetts by the Fiscal Alliance. If you ever want uh, a fun read, uh, look up Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance Donors and see what you find. So this, oh, 17 pages. This 17-page document is mostly kind of like what you would write in grad school, except it goes very, very little into the actual methodology of the study, because not all studies are equal. I can poll my mom and say, am I the greatest boy in the world? And they'll my mom will say, yes, probably. And then I can say, according to a study, I'm the greatest boy in the world. And so you always have to look at the methodology. Whenever these people are saying, well, a study said this, okay, well, who did the study? Do they have a financial investment in it? Meaning where do they get their money? And also what methodology did they use to come to that conclusion? And so for this study, and you're going to hear this from now until the fall of 2022, so let's all get used to it again, from the Beacon Hill Institute. I'll say the name just so everyone keep an eye out for it. The economic and fiscal effects of a proposed millionaire's tax in Massachusetts. And, and how did they um, come up with this, that it's going to hurt the Massachusetts economy? As I quickly scan to find when they talk about their ideology. Let me scan, increase this. ba right, Come on, where are you? Give give us your methodology. Still nothing. Still nothing. Oh, my God. Come on. Where'd you find it? I know this is riveting, but, I mean, one, you can tell that the study's BS because every study publication should have a very clear methodology section which jumps out. oh, here we go. This report attempts to fill that vacuum. Specifically, we find, and here's the quote, using our in-house computer model, that the effects of the economy will be as followed. And then it shows a bunch of negative numbers, negative investment, negative real disposable income, negative gross domestic product. But again, how did they do that? Did they look at reality? Did they look at examples of other states that have done similar taxes and saw what happened, no. They, quoting again, using our in-house computer model. I can create an algorithm on Google Excel and I can make it say whatever I want, because it's fictional. It's a bunch of variables that you can increase and decrease in weight, depending on what you think is important. And all right-wing economics, all neoliberal economics, entire trickle-down economics has been justified not by looking at reality and what happened, but instead, well, according to the model, it works. According to our Google Excel sheet, this works. And so whenever you see that someone's study was done because of a computer model, it's BS. It doesn't mean anything because it's not based in reality. It's based on what they think reality should look like on a Google Excel sheet. So what does happen? I went through this one yesterday. This was a study done in 2014, which looked at real-world examples. Because, again, we're not the first state to try something like this. New Jersey passed in 2004. California, 05. Maryland, 08. Hawaii, Wisconsin, Oregon, New York, Connecticut, California, Minnesota. They said California twice because it did it twice in that time period. There are... States that we can look at who have done this before, and then we can try to measure the effects of. You do what's called a difference of different studies. So Some sociologists refer to it differently. But basically looking at, well, one, what just happened when you did that? Did you see migration? Did you see economic benefit or loss? You can compare it to a similar city, a similar state, a similar population who didn't do it. And you try to get comparisons based upon the real world. Uh, Whole book was published, I believe, 2017. The Myth of the Millionaire Tax Flight, and I I need to bring up, I found a great, uh, here it is, a great executive summary of it, okay. And again, I believe this was published in 2017, name of the book, The Myth of the Millionaire Tax Flight. Many places and nations are concerned about the migration of top top taxpayers. Taxes paid by the rich provide... Revenue for vital public services and help to address the growing inequality in market incomes. However, millionaire migration, the flight of the largest tax players, can drain state revenues and set off a race to the bottom as states try to woo the richest and ever lower tax rates. And again, this is a perfectly fine hypothesis to have, as this author introduces. If we tax the rich, what happens? Do they leave? Does it hurt us? Or do we benefit? And as you can probably tell by the title of The Myth of the Millionaire Tax Flight by Cristobal Young, I haven't read it, I'm looking forward to it, I think I maybe uh, saw a podcast or two that she was on, they found that this generally does not happen. In reality, it does not happen. And so how did they do their methodology? Did did they use um, some computer model? Did they also do an algorithm? data and methods this is all just from the uh, the introductory uh, paragraph i'm sorry the introductory chapter of the book my reading now my initial entry point into this research area was in studying the effect of the so-called millionaire tax passed in New Jersey in 2004 this policy raised the tax credit on incomes over 500,000 by 2.6% the New Jersey Division of Taxation granted me and my college unique access to the complete NJ-1040 tax records from 2000-2007. Going further into what did they use as their data points. For this book, I drew on special access to the tax returns of every million-dollar income earner in every U.S. state over 13 years, including 45 million tax records from anyone who ever filed a tax return with annual income of at least $1 million between the years of 1999 and 2011. This author didn't build a computer model, didn't set an algorithm, actually looked at the tax returns and saw what happened and where did these people go. And in their conclusion, reading now, it is tempting to think that without legal borders and citizenship rules, populations would readily spill across borders. But at least... Among people born in rich countries, national borders are much less important than we think. Hold on. That was actually not the uh, paragraph I wanted to hit. Here it is. I emphasize that human capital... Let me back up. This chapter is about understanding why place is important and why mobility, especially for those at the top, is less appealing than we often think. I emphasize... emphasize that human capital, knowledge, skills, and abilities tends to be place-specific. Top-level financial analysts, for example, have place-specific human capital. Their skills would be most valued in a handful of major cities that specialize in finance, which limits where they can live. Similarly, social capital depends on living in the place where people have their best social contacts and connections, which makes sense the more you think about it. Rich people like to be around other rich people. Rich people value the social network, so that's basically how you get those jobs anyway. Their skills, are especially, again, the uber-wealthy, I mean, they mostly just hop to city to city, to two or three of them. Mostly in New York and California, which I believe both have higher state income taxes than we do. By the time people reach the peak of their careers and enter into the top tax brackets of their states and countries, most have become embedded elites. Moving at one's peak career stage is rare because so much human, social, and cultural capital have already been invested in one's location. When you achieve success in a place, it becomes harder to leave. And again, there are hundreds of these studies that looked at real-world examples that show you that when you tax the rich, they do not leave. They stay where they are. You benefit from what you get back in taxation. Triple on economics does not work. The idea that they will leave and run away is bullshit in reality. Anyone can build a computer algorithm which says otherwise. But in reality, it does not happen. This is again for, I'm just going to catch up with the chats now. So if you have your questions, ask them now because I got to track different chat channels. This is a book called The Myth of the Millionaire Tax Flight, How Place Still Matters for the Rich, to combat what will be the main talking point that we face from now until November of 2022, which is that if we tax the rich, they will leave. It does not happen in reality, period. I'm going to quickly scan the chat here. Thank you, uh, super gay gnomes. I love you, gnomes. Um, the quality of life questions you're asking me is a little tough for me to do study to study. I can just tell you what they are across the United States. Uh, My solution is to democratize all the workplaces. (laughs) And okay. So that's the top story I wanted to hit. And this will not be the last time that I go into this. Um. And maybe I'll read the book, and I'll, I'll go through a couple different chapters uh, to go through it, because we're going to hear this talking point nonstop. Now, the the second story I want to hit, and I don't know where we are with the Bruins game, to be honest. I'm hoping they're still in the second intermission, so if somebody can help me out on the chats, that'd be great. But I got a couple people, actually, uh, requested that, or at least asked me, why are Ubers and Lyfts, so expensive right now or why do we have to wait so long to get an uber and a lyft so i'm going to actually start with new york because boston slash massachusetts has some exceptions to this so this is from the new york post and if you just google uber lyft shortage you'll see dozens of articles written in the past few weeks about this topic uber wanted an eye-popping 39 dollars So Wood hoofed the 14 blocks in her running sneakers. The prices have just been astronomical, Wood said. I'm going to plan ahead, and I'm going to allow more time to take the subway and walk. According to the Taxi and Limousine Commission, there were 4,900 yellow cabs cruising the city in April. While that's up slightly from 4700 in March, that's less than half of the 11,400 cabs that were available in February 2020 before lockdowns. So now this article is getting to the main point that since COVID, post-COVID, there has been a massive shortage of drivers. So the we're going to say the first reason is because a lot of the driver force left the workforce once COVID hit. Obviously, once uh, everything went locked down, people were traveling less. You just had less need of it. Obviously, people don't feel safe about driving during the public health crisis, and part of that has continued to this day. And then also, some went to other industries, doordash, food delivery, etc, while those things spiked. and because of the increase in unemployment benefits. Reading here, he hopes to get back to full capacity by year's end, but obstacles remain, particularly the $300 a week in federal sweetener to jobless benefits in New York. So those four reasons are why right now across the nation, Ubers and Lyfts are either more expensive or, to phrase it the other way, why is there a shortage of Uber and Lyft drivers? Uber is spending $250 million on temporary bonuses to get more drivers on the road. And in some places like, like New York, at least a spokesman is saying they make 38 per hour plus tips, which, of course, if you're a spokesman of Uber, one, go fuck yourself. Second, you're probably not telling us the truth. This article does have some people that say that they are making a lot. But again, this is the New York Post. It's tough to say. They would never be honest with these numbers of figures to begin with. But that's part of the reason. Here in Massachusetts, there is an additional reason about the shortage of Uber and Lyfts, and this has to do with, we price ours differently than in other states. ride and companies are grappling with a nationwide shortage of drivers. The number of US-based drivers logging into Uber during the first three months of 2021 was down 37.5%, and 42% over the same period, because again, they, the drivers have not returned. Some. Do not want to drive when there is still a public health crisis going on. Some, and this is the most uh, rational decision, if you make more being unemployed, or another way of phrasing it, you make so little being a driver, why would I drive? If you want more Uber and Lyft drivers, Uber and Lyft needs to pay their drivers more to recruit people. That is theoretically what is supposed to happen in a free market economy. If there is a labor shortage, salaries for labor is supposed to increase. The twist with Massachusetts, reading now, perhaps the most obvious culprit for the shortage is a 2016 Massachusetts law that banned surge pricing. And that is why, just anecdotally, at least in the New York Post, some drivers in states that still have surge uh, pricing are making a lot of money. Now, outside of those factors, the big question mark, and this is true for a lot of things in this country, is what's going to happen at the end of September? Because we have the eviction moratorium, as weak as it has been. There have still been evictions throughout COVID. The uh, nationwide eviction moratorium ends, I believe, the end of July. The moratorium on student loan payments ends in September. The additional $300 a week from the federal government, some southern states are axing it early. While others will continue to take advantage of it. I believe that also ends in September. And so once this money that is basically keeping people alive, making it so people don't have to go back to their shitty jobs as a waitress or a waiter, their shitty jobs as an Uber or Lyft driver. Once those are gone, because, and this is kind of the secret, and Alan Greenspan said it openly in a Senate hearing, they view their jobs as disciplining labor. Because all of us in this system, unless you own, unless you own land and you rent it out or you own a business and you hire employees to do the work and you make your profit from their labor, all of us have to sell our labor to get food, to get shelter, to get health care. And so, again, as I said, Alan Greenspan, the Federal Reserve Chair, said they view their job as disciplining labor, of making it so you will starve You will be homeless unless you voluntarily sell your labor to these companies. And they want to keep that price as low as possible to squeeze you. So Uber and Lyft start giving $40 per hour guaranteed healthcare benefits, you'll see more Uber drivers and Lyft drivers. I mean, Uber and Lyft don't make a profit anyway. They're tens of billions of dollars in debt, so who cares at a certain point? But again, that's not the point. Cruelty is the point. The discipline of labor is the point. So for the, for the people who asked me to, to cover that, that's why you're going to wait so long for an Uber and a Lyft. I want to see if I can quickly find you how long it's taking. And again, to another anecdotal point about how much they're making right now. Um, Stephen uh, Levine of Lynn, who started driving for Uber full-time in 2015 at a base rate of $1.24 per mile, that same rate has now decreased to 66 cents. So according to New York Post, some drivers are making more in New York. According to this, drivers here in Massachusetts are, are less. And I thought I quickly, when I scanned this, saw a wait time for uh, Massachusetts, but maybe I'm mistaken. Oh, here we go. Nowhere is the problem more acute than in Boston. The average wait time for an Uber in Boston this spring is 40% longer than Philadelphia, 147% longer in New York City. Again, according to a company spokesman. So, I don't know. I can't, I, I can't really trust a company spokesman. But I believe it. So I've not taken an Uber in God knows how long. I've, I've taken the T, but that's about it. But okay. I hope that was helpful. I have to imagine the third period has started. As you can tell, I'm wearing the the Kragan hat this Is my demonstration of anger for the Bruins. I took my Bruins hat off. I I can't celebrate uh, that pathetic performance of the second period. So we'll see what happens. Um, Thank you all for hopping on. Um, I do not know top of my head about the Bellringers Guild, but if you want to shoot me a DM, that would be awesome. More information besides that, please continue to support the show wherever you find it. Like, subscribe, follow, tell your friends about it. Um, if you're my TikTok audience, I obviously love you. Um, I would recommend following me on Twitch or uh, YouTube so that uh, you can see the live. And I do videos. We have a lot of great videos. It was a crazy Boston City Council hearing, it sounds like, today. So we'll probably do that maybe tomorrow. Uh, tune in for that. And everyone, take care. And let's see what the bees got. But I'm not banking. And for some reason, I apologize if the bit frames are off. I'm getting all these warnings over here.